Hello and welcome to Anam Radio. And this week we talk to percussionist and conductor Peter Neville. Hello, Peter. G'day, Phil. How are you? <laughs> Not too bad, thanks. Now, this week we're going to be dealing with, I think, one of the most unique, bizarre, outrageous, complex, fascinating pieces slash events of the uh, 20th century. We go back to the 1920s and the American composer George Antile, who was born in New Jersey, but in the 20s was living in Paris, which is where modernist Americans seemed to gravitate at that time. And Peter, the piece we're talking about is the ballet mechanique but we need to specify that this piece is not actually a ballet is it it's not a ballet in fact it was originally envisaged as music to go with a film that was made by Fernand Leger and the filmmaker Dudley Murphy along with uh, Man Ray famous photographer who was the cinematographer it never actually came together for the film and that's perhaps something we can talk about later I think the actual title Ballet Mechanique is the name of a sculpture by Picabia that's what I was reading about Antal claims to have not remembered where the title came from but one of the sources I was reading said it was uh, yeah Picabia sculpture made out of parts of an old model T forward I believe so yes let's talk about the mechanic because he had this extravagant vision for a piece with 16 pianolas and percussion as well now can you describe to us what a pianola actually is because a lot of people have probably never seen one well, actually, when I was a kid growing up in the 60s, they were still around a lot. You'd go and visit granny or great aunt or uncle and everyone had a pianola. So it looks like a conventional upright piano, but it can also be activated by paper rolls that are passed through the machine. They have holes cut in them and when the little spikes perceive a hole, it tells which of the keys to go down. And you actually have to play it by pumping it. So that's the sort of tricky thing. So the original pianolas the piece was designed for actually required humans to sit there and pump them and try and pump them at just the right speed to keep up with the conductor. So it's actually an incredibly tricky thing um, to synchronise. We should perhaps say that this piece is pretty well shrouded in mystique. So there's not been any one really definitive version of it until finally, um, I think it was like the 2000s when Schirmer decided to commission a proper score, which is the version that we gave four years ago. So actually Antile's original concept for the thing was a piece for four acoustic pianos with percussion. And the story was that he met his idol Stravinsky in Berlin in 1922 and confided in Stravinsky that he had a plan for this piece. And um, Stravinsky was working on his famous work, Les Nos at the time, The Wedding, which is for choir, massed pianos and percussion. And Stravinsky's original concept for that actually is really interesting. He was planning to write for Pianola, um, mechanical role operated chimbalum. So the chimbalum is the Hungarian zither with a tricky system of, of the notes being laid out. So part of the problem was that they commissioned Playel to make these machines, but Stravinsky had promised Diaghilev um, a certain exclusivity on Lenos, and he was running out of time to produce the thing. So after his conversation with Antile, lo and behold, the next year Antile turns up in Paris in 1923. Uh, in June of that year to hear the world premiere of Les Nos. And funny about that, it's for four acoustic pianos. So at that point, Antile turned around, decided he was going to sort of out Stravinsky Stravinsky, and he came up with the idea then for the 16 pianolas. So Stravinsky might have had four acoustic pianos, but um, that was going to be no match for these 16 pianolas. And the Playel company had actually created a master controller, if you like, to try and synchronise the machines but there was no way it could cope with up to 16. So he eventually sort of 
reworked the concept. And I think the original performance just had the one pianola with the four different strands of music that were conceived for the four pianolas compressed into the one. And then he added acoustic pianos to that mix. And then there were various other versions. You can read all about the different attempts to get it together. But as I said, it wasn't until Schirmer went back to the original scores, which themselves are interesting stories, and the original roles. And someone had to actually sift through the original piano roles and determine what could and couldn't work. And also there were problems like in compressing four pianolas onto one. Um, at a certain point, there would be so many notes punched into the paper that the paper would literally <laughs> fall apart. So he had to remove pictures um, in certain versions of that. And I think they got reinstated perhaps back into the, the four pianola version, which is the one that we finally got to look at four years ago. So it's a fairly convoluted history. <laughs> and Peter, the moral of the story is that if you're a composer, don't ever share your ideas with other composers because, you know, you might end up losing them. Well, that's true. It seems he might have got the pianola idea from Stravinsky because the day after the actual premiere of Lenos, they went to the Playel studio and Stravinsky demonstrated a version of it compressed onto pianola music. And at that point, I think the light bulbs went off in Antile's head. So it was a bit of uh, to and fro on that one. I think each took from the other. Yes, I think he actually said to Stravinsky, I prefer the pianola version to the acoustic version because it was more precise, it was cleaner, the rhythms were more distinct and so on. Let's move on and try and unpick the mystique of this piece. He laboured over it for, well, at least a year and eventually it got its premiere at the Théâtre de Champs-Élysées, which is significant in Paris in... 1926, I think. 1926. June the 19th. Correct, which was incidentally the same theatre where Stravinsky's Rite of Spring had premiered. And it was a stellar event. It was sold out. It was full of the uh, glitterati of the time. James Joyce was there, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, Diaghilev, and it made George Antile a celebrity. But there were difficulties which became evident. It was impossible, as you said, to keep all the pianolas synchronised. And then there was a further performance at Carnegie Hall which was less successful. So he ended up having to compromise by including fewer pianolas and more live pianists. But let's talk about the actual texture of the music itself. How would you describe it for someone who hasn't yet heard it? Well, it can be absolutely overwhelming at times. You've got this mass of keyboard sound and with the pianolas they're able to actually of course play things that no human can so in the live performance the piano parts are extremely challenging as are the xylophone parts almost at the edge of human capability actually but there's also a lot of debate about the tempo of what it should be and there's, there's a lot of writings about what he actually had in mind with that regard but be that as it may yeah some of the music on the pianolas is ultra fast and for the time it must have been totally astounding given people couldn't play that fast people weren't used to hearing stuff like that we forget now we've had digital technology and sampling and all of those sort of machines for decades it's just part of what we take on board now um, in, in our modern musical culture but it must have sounded really stunning then and also in terms of his percussion layout as I said there's at least three xylophones and four what's listed as drums on the score but is generally taken from one of the performances to be four bass drums so the bass drum is a feature of Stravinsky's Sacra and he sort of out sacked the Sacra as one of the writers said um, <laughs> by choosing four instead of one but to that he also added some oddities so um, we have three aeroplane propellers large, small and wooden, I think is how they're distinguished. 11 um, doorbells, electric door buzzers of different pitches and the score actually specifies the pitches and they're all played in tune. 
plus a tam-tam. So it's a very, very striking percussion, in inverted commas for some of it at least, lineup. And that was one of the things about both those premiere performances in Paris and New York was they couldn't actually get real aeroplane propellers <laughs> into the hole, strangely, with the, the appropriate engines behind them. So what they oh, did come is they, on, they, they just didn't try hard enough. <laughs> Talk about lazy. I guess it'd be like doing the 1812 Overture and putting some real cannon all loaded up and seeing how you got on. But um, So, yeah, they used electric fans. And, in fact, I think they were putting bits of lead or wood into the fans to um, hit against um, the blades to make the requisite noises. But the effect of it was the blast of air across the audience. In Paris, that the fans were, were aiming up. But as a bit of a joke, half the audience got their umbrellas out and put them out. So it, it, there was a sea of umbrellas in the hall. Um, in New York, the fans were aiming forward and they actually had the effect of blowing all the patrons' um, programs out of their hands and things. But rather than causing a shock in New York, it, tend- it just caused embarrassment. And the other thing that happened, oh, the sirens as well, I forgot to mention that. In New York, one of the sirens towards the very end of the piece uh, malfunctioned and it was getting all wound up, but didn't actually start to sound until the piece was almost finished. And it kept going till well after the piece had finished and in fact drowned out what was quite lukewarm applause. So there are a few things that happened at those performances as well. And, you know, Antal deliberately courted, like Stravinsky, controversy and set out to create a riot, actually, at that Paris performance, and everyone was primed for it. And it achieved the desired result and got him the notoriety he wanted. But in New York, it just it didn't go down well, and that actually tarnished his reputation for decades to come. Yes, and I have to say, he never attempted anything so ambitious ever again. In fact, he went on to become, a, well, I have to say, a much more conventional composer. And in fact, in the 1950s, he reworked the ballet mechanique for a much more conventional combination of four acoustic pianos and percussion and shortened the work. And that's performed a lot, but it's lost something, hasn't it, in that form? It has. It's a beautiful piece, though, and um, I've played it once in Brisbane, in a way, that sort of completes the circle back to Les Nos. So you've just got your four acoustic pianos. There's no uh, mechanical pianos in that version at all. And actually, the percussion lineup's quite altered. So he goes back to one xylophone, he adds a glockenspiel, and then he adds some other instruments that are in Les Nos that weren't in the original ballet mechanic, being timpani, woodblock, tambourine, etc. So it actually, in a funny way, sounds a lot more like the music of Les Nos, the revised version. But it's well worth doing, and that, that would be one of my future ambitions if we could, and then to put that version together with Les Nos. I think that would be a wonderful program. I agree. I, I still think it's a very strong piece actually his later version but you know Peter when I first listened to this piece it really made me think of old 1920s and 1930s sci-fi magazines and sci-fi movies that sort of gleaming futuristic vision and then I discovered that his original title was Message to Mars did you know that? Right I had read that somewhere along the way yeah (laughs) I mean look he was a fascinating character and he wasn't just a composer I mean he uh, was a novelist he wrote a crime novel and apparently even lonely hearts letters as parts of his work as a journalist but the other thing that people don't know he was also um, an inventor and there's a very famous episode from the second world war where him and the famous actress Hedy Lamarr who was one of the screen sirens of her time and she was incredibly brilliant woman they worked together to develop a machine 
Um, well, how would you describe it? Well, it was a radio guidance system to help Allied torpedoes find their mark. That's right. And to avoid detection by the enemy, they came up with a system of synchronising two radio transmitters on two ships by means of basically player piano rolls. And they were hopping. It was a frequency hopping device. So that they were hopping between all these different frequencies, which the enemy didn't have any way of detecting. But they were synchronising those frequencies through use of these simultaneous rolls. And in fact... Um, it's now known as spread spectrum and is the basis of at least for a lot of what we take for granted today with Wi-Fi and all of that. The Navy at the time didn't take the idea on board, but they kept working on it. And then, in fact, it got taken up, I think, during the Cuban Missile Crisis once it was out of copyright. And Lamar and Antal never saw any royalties for it. But an incredibly important invention. And I think it speaks to just the fertile mind of both of them. But, you know, particularly since we're talking about Antal, he wasn't just a composer. I found that an incredible episode, actually. Here's Hedy Lamar, who was a Viennese trained physicist, a brilliant woman as you say, she goes to America she becomes one of the most beautiful women on the screen, a major Hollywood star and she teams up with this eccentric avant-garde composer to uh, help win the war. It all adds to the mystique and there was a great documentary not that long ago about the two of them and that invention, that's how I actually knew about it. All right, now I want to jump forward to your performance. What arrangements have to be made to bring the original version, or as close as possible to it, of Ballet Mechanique to the concert platform now? What technology do we have to use? Well, as I said, the Schumer Company came up with this standard edition, and also at the same time, we're working to get the pianola parts converted to MIDI files. So for people not listening, MIDI is a very common format now where you can have basically the music played by machines in perfect synchronization. So for the first time ever, really, it was actually possible to have 16 different, uh, well, the modern versions of player pianos, MIDI pianos, playing in absolute synchronization. And they also created what's called a click track, which is basically a metronome in the earpiece for the conductor to follow along. So everything can stay totally coordinated. And that was actually work that was begun by Ensemble Moderne back in, I think, even the mid-90s or something. So that process also has quite a story to it which is told in the preface to the score as we rented it again it's everything about this piece is convoluted and drawn out but that for the first time then means the original as far as we can tell is able to be performed i've got to say this was the most complicated and scary thing i've ever taken on in my whole time well this was my next question peter how hard was it in rehearsal to get this all to come together it starts before rehearsal, and I looked at our correspondence too, Phil, and we were talking about this back at least a year before and writing off, and I've got our first emails to Rex Lawson, who is the world's foremost pianolist and, and who's played the piece a number of times and is probably the only pianolist, or, or as he puts it, on the planet who actually has the, the skills to coordinate that with a conductor. And, you know, that was part of our research. So quite apart from the playing, the scores, the gear, there was a lot of research involved, I think, wasn't there, just to get back to the source yes. and, uh, and try and find this. And... I think the more we, we both read about it, the more excited we got that this was going to be an incredibly important event. And as far as we can tell, it was the Australian premiere of this version. But uh, quite apart from doing the piece by itself, you might remember we actually took on the not insubstantial task of pairing it up with a, a new version of a Stravinsky's Rite of Spring to make the Stravinsky connection for, for acoustic pianos and percussion. And also Alberto Ginastera's landmark work from 1961, Cantata for Magic America, which is for two pianos, Celeste, Massed Percussion and Dramatic Soprano. So it was incredibly ambitious. With regards to the um, ballet mechanique itself, of course, there was the issue of rounding up the MIDI pianos. I think we had in the end two that had the movable keyboard and we had to then just go with two basically computer um, versions of those four parts. Plus we had the four live pianos and then 
Also, trying to sort out the percussion between the propellers and the tuned doorbells is an incredibly difficult task, and there's various ways you can tackle that. But what we ended up with was, again, um, sampled recordings, which were triggered or played off a computer or a MIDI keyboard in the case of the doorbells. Um, and so my dear friend and colleague, Gary France, uh, thankfully helped with all that part of thing in getting the MIDI percussion instruments organized. So there was all of that. And then the parts themselves, as I've said, at certain points really do approach the limits of playability. And I couldn't think of anywhere else but Anan that you could hope to put a project like this together. And it was just incredible at the first rehearsals to hear the pianist, the xylophonist and everyone um, start to put this piece together. There's only so much slow rehearsal you can do because you have to keep up with the track. And if I'm correct, I think we could actually alter the tempo. That was part of the facility that the computer and MIDI version gives you. But certainly you're committed to playing with that track. So it's just a huge undertaking. And concert giving is sometimes like walking a tightrope. You just hope you don't fall off. And there's not much of a safety net below. But um, again, it's a credit to the Anna musicians and the guests we had and the whole organization. It's not just the musicians. It's all the people like yourself, Phil, with the support and all the tech support people like Alistair etc that make these sort of projects happen well it certainly was a night to remember and congratulations for bringing it off I think it was a stunning success and uh, maybe we can do the 1950s version in the near future because it is beautiful in its own right just not as epic it's, it's much simpler to put together than the original one and I, I'd be hopeful we could do it and potentially then to, yes to pair it up with Lainos which has been on the wish list for some time Peter Neville thanks for talking to us at Anam Radio Thanks very much, Phil. It's been wonderful.